Hey, welcome everybody. Glad that you guys are joining us wherever you are, whether it's on Facebook or YouTube or through our website. However it is that you're joining us and wherever you are, welcome. I am so glad, so glad and so blessed to be able to share a word of God with you here this morning. I hope you're ready. I hope you've got your Bibles because there is going to be uh, a lot of Scripture in this one today. And I think it's important, though, that we look through it. Um, I think it's important for a lot of reasons. I was talking with a friend of mine, Scott, you're out there, thank you, shout out to you for um, the word about revival this week. We were talking about revival in the church, and just real briefly, we were talking about the, um, basically the definition of revival. And I think we all want to pray for revival. We all expect to see and hope to see revival in the church. But what really is that? I think revival at its basic level is just simply a renewal of excitement for the things of God, a renewal of excitement for digging into Scripture, for, um, for loving one another and carrying out the words of God. But so many people want to sit and simply just pray for revival, like it's something that God is just going to drop on us. I think revival starts in our heart, and it starts with that excitement that builds. And that excitement starts with us being willing to engage in the things of God. And so when we teach a message like this from a minor prophet, Amos, that lived uh, 2,800 years ago, we need to look at that with a hunger to find out how it applies to our lives, what we can take away and apply, because there's not a single word in the entirety of Scripture that is fluff. There's nothing there that's a waste or just taking up space. It is all the Word of God, and it is all able to, to help guide us through this life. So that's where we are. Let's, let's jump into Hey, before we do, I just have to do a shout-out again to my NASCAR fans. Guess what happens this afternoon? Live racing again. I know where I'm going to be when they drop the flag. Um, so if, if that's you, shoot me a text or give us a comment that you're going to be there with me in spirit. Hey, so let's get into the message here. We are in this series called Trey Asar. Trey Asar is a Hebrew word that just means the 12. And the 12 is not the 12 apostles, as you might think, but the 12 is the 12 minor prophets. So we have the major prophets. Everybody knows about Isaiah and some of the major prophets. They're major simply because they wrote a lot. They were very prolific in their, in their writing. The minor prophets were more, were more focused, more concise, smaller, shorter scripture uh, passages for sure, but equally as powerful and just directed towards a specific people at a specific time. And that's how God used his prophets, especially in the Old Testament times. There were people who needed a reminder of God's word. In many cases, they knew that God's word. The prophet wasn't telling them anything they didn't know, but they needed a reminder. And they needed a reminder, in many cases, of the consequences of failure to heed God's word. And so this is where we are. I hope you're, I hope you're excited to get into this. Let's take a look at it. We started out our series a few weeks ago. If you've missed any of them, whatever platform you're looking at right now, you can also go in and check out our archives and check out the previous messages in this series. I think it's good to have a foundation and see as we go through because they will sort of build on one another. So we started out with Ovadia. We, then we went to uh, Yoel or Joel. And then last week we taught the story of Jonah. That was a fun one for me to teach, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. But let's get started this week as we look at the book of Amos, or as it's correctly pronounced, Amos. Let's take a look at that. Before we get into the whole scripture, I want to give you what I would call the Cliff's Notes version. Remember Cliff's Notes from school, right? You'd look at that, and I don't want to read the whole book. I'd just give me the synopsis of it. Here's one that I wrote for Amos. Listen to this. Amos was just a simple shepherd called by God to deliver a message that nobody thought they needed to hear. Israel had grown complacent, fat, metaphorically, spiritually lazy, and hypocritical. Social injustice in the forms of human trafficking, slavery, greed, and mistreatment of the poor was considered normal at this time. 
Though they knew God, worshiping him completely took a backseat to the pursuit of material wealth. That's it. Now, some of you may stop there, say, check, I know about almost, and move on to your day. But I encourage you, I want you to stay with me. Stay with me as we go through and hear specifically what God's word says about social justice. We think social justice is just a, a, a modern invention or, or certainly a modern problem, but this goes all the way back. There's nothing that God hasn't foreseen and hasn't addressed. One of the reasons we have Scripture is so that we can see what God said about this thousands of years ago and to know that the things we're going through today are nothing new and different, and he has given us guidance. That's why it's so important for us to study the Scripture. So before we get into what the Lord says about social justice, Let's just talk about who almost was as a person, kind of lay the, lay the foundation for going into the Scripture. So first of all, here's an image of almost. It's not a picture, okay? It's just a painting, a depiction, but it's pretty accurate from historical accounts that I've seen. One of the first things you might notice is a contrast to some of the other prophets that we've seen who were very regal and stately-looking. These were, in the most, for the most part, uh, what you call a professional prophet. Amos was not. Amos was just a shepherd. He was just a shepherd. In fact, his own scripture says that he was a grower of sycamore figs and a shepherd. He was certainly not a professional prophet. And that will be important later. We'll talk about that more as we get in. He lived about the 8th century B.C., okay, born approximately 800 B.C. and died a about 745 B.C., he was what they call a contemporary, or he lived and, and prophesied at about the same time as Jonah, uh, Hosea, and Isaiah. Different messages for different people, but approximately the same time. He was born in a town called Tekoa, which is 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Okay, so that would have put it solidly in the southern kingdom of Judah. So this is where we are. Again, he was a, he was a shepherd grower of figs. He was really just an average guy when God chose him and called him out. The setting now for this prophecy, the setting for those times is this. Uh, King Herobam II was king of Israel. Again, the northern kingdom was Israel, and, and King Herobam II was that king. Uzziah was the king of Judah. Okay, so again, the divided kingdom. We had two different kings. It was a time of peace. Remember, the two kingdoms constantly bickered and fought back and forth, but this was a time of relative peace. They were working together. It was a time of prosperity. They were developing trade routes. Uh, they were much more focused at that point on expanding their kingdoms and trade and wealth and the acquisition of wealth than they were about fighting each other. And they were getting a lot of that done. There was great expansion and a lot of economic prosperity happening in part because if you remember from, uh, from a message a while back, we talked about um, Jonah delivering his message just last week. Uh, time flies, right? Uh, Jonah delivering his message to Nineveh and how Nineveh just immediately repented and turned to God. Well, this was able to take a major source of, of constant uh, anguish and, and turmoil off of their border and calm that down. So this allowed them to do that. It also, this time of peace between Judah and Israel, allowed a prophet from Judah, like Amos, to be able to actually travel north into Israel safely and deliver the prophecy that he's called to deliver here. So this is where we are. Check out last week's message on Jonah if you want to hear more about uh, Assyria and, and Nineveh. But again, this was a time of great political political um, alliances, economic expansion. These things were all going on. These trading empires were being built. Um, Herobam II actually was expanding Israel like crazy by controlling the trade routes on either side of the Jordan. Again, just expanding hand over fist like crazy, a great time of economic prosperity. And the side effect of that is that worship of God had become an afterthought. It had become, it's still a part of their lives. That's inbred in their culture. 
but it was a total afterthought in what they did. They would go through the motions. In other words, we're in the middle of our, of our busy uh, trading day, our busy commerce day, but let's stop for a moment and run to the synagogue and pray, and then we'll leave. It was just an afterthought. It wasn't central to their lives anymore. Going through the motions and God's laws of social justice, God's laws of brotherhood, love one another, love your neighbor, all these things that we had been taught, they had been taught for centuries, had started to slip by the wayside in the pursuit of economic wealth. So let's get into the actual scripture itself. There's a lot of it. Again, if you have your Bible, follow along. I use the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. If you have a different version, it's going to read a little bit differently, but follow along with me here. Let's get into the very first scripture we have, Amos 1.1. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders of Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Herobam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. All right, that little two years before the earthquake. This earthquake was a big thing. Let me take a second and just kind of talk about this earthquake really quickly. Um, this earthquake, archaeologists now have gone back and they can actually excavate places that were damaged, palaces and things that were damaged, and date, along with geologists and things, date when these earthquakes happened. This earthquake was approximately a magnitude 8 earthquake that happened. Don't ask me how they know that, but they know that. It actually damaged Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Um, but here's the thing. It was a direct punishment for the desecration of the temple by King Uzziah in Judah. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that that was in response? Let's look at some different sources. Whenever we're looking at things like this, trying to determine whether it really happened, of course, we, use, we can use science and things like that, archaeologists, but sometimes we turn to different literary sources. Let me, let me give you a couple sources on how we know this. 300 years after this earthquake, after this event, Zechariah, another prophet that we'll talk about in the coming weeks, Zechariah 14.5 says, You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So 300 years later, it's well known enough to where he's pointing back to it and said, Remember that? Remember how you fled then? You're going to flee again. Now, now 400 years later, we fast forward a little bit more to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 26, 16, and 19. It reads like this. I'll just read it to you. This is talking about King Uzziah of Judah. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Let me stop right there for a minute. Remember, in the southern kingdom of Judah contained Jerusalem, which also had Solomon's temple there, right? Only the chief of priests was able to go into the temple. Okay, Isaiah as king, he may be king, but he is not allowed to go into the temple. But in his own pride, he said, I am going into the temple. He went into the temple, not necessarily to desecrate it, but it says here to burn incense on the altar. Here's the result of this. Verse 19, but Uzziah with a censer in his hand, that's those things that you saw, you'd see them swinging with the incense in it, okay? With a censer in his hand for burning incense was enraged. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. In the middle of his rage, he breaks out in leprosy right then and there. Scripture later tells us that he ends up dying alone of leprosy. He's, he's sequestered alone and he dies of leprosy. Now let's look at one more just to wrap up this thing on the, on the earthquake and the reasons for it. 800 years later, there's a Roman historian. His name is Josephus. If you're ever interested in, in nerding out and reading some of the words of Josephus, read the Antiquities of the Jews. You can get it online. It's free. It's really cool. Antiquities of the Jews from Josephus, book, uh, it's book 9, chapter 10, verse 4, says this about that event, and it, it encapsulates them both. A great earthquake shook the ground, and a rent was made in the temple, and a bright ray of sun sh the bright rays of the sun shone through it and fell upon the king's face, 
insomuch that the leprosy seized upon him immediately. And before the city, at a place called Eroge, half the mountain broke off from the rest of the west. Okay? Giant earthquake, leprosy, all this happened immediately as a result of Uzziah desecrating the temple. Now, never, never one to let a good disaster go to waste. Sound like something that we hear talked about every now and then in modern times here. Never willing to let a good disaster go to waste. Horobam of the north preys on the misfortune of his neighbor. Okay, Uzziah had just been struck with leprosy, giant earthquake centered right in that region. And he uses that weakness to establish new trade connections and new uh, pathways for commerce and new political connections, capitalizes on that immediately. Now, why do I give you all these facts and backstory? Why do I go to all the trouble of doing this? Because I want you to know that the word of God is 100% true and accurate on everything that it addresses. There's nothing that's fluffed. There's nothing that's put in there for, for no reason. And the more you get into it, the more you realize that all these different sources back one another up This is pre-Google days. There's no way they could have coordinated without the Bible and the Word of God being divinely inspired. This is why I give you this kind of background from time to time. But let's move on now. Let's get back to the Scripture really quick, and let's talk about this. Amos uh, chapter 1, verse 2 says, He said, The Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherds' pasture grounds mourn, and the summit of Carmel dries up. Now, this area that he's talking about right here covers both the northern and southern kingdoms, okay? It's a giant area, and this image of a roaring lion, being a shepherd would have been one that was very, very common to him, striking terror. When you hear the roar of the lion, something's about to go down, and he's evoking that, that imagery there. And when we talked about uh, Joel or Yoel a few weeks ago, the lion was roaring for Israel, In this case, the lion is roaring against Israel. Now, if you read the scripture, and I encourage you to read it, almost as nine chapters. If you read through it all, you're going to get so much richness out of it. But for the next 18 verses, um, the Lord goes to pronounce judgment on the enemies of Israel, including Judah. Okay, so remember, Amos is prophesying this to the nation of Israel. Give it to you real quickly. Amos 1.3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. Let's leave that up there for just a second. Let me talk about this really quick. Gilead sits in the northern kind of Golan Heights, what we would call the Golan Heights now area of Israel. That's where Gilead is. They were repeatedly raided. The Syrians from Damascus would come across the border and raid Uh, and raid this area of Gilead, constantly going in and stealing and raping and pillaging and and essentially just being a a pain constantly. Now, that statement for three transgressions and for four, that's a common literary style of the day, and Amos uses that. Amos writes beautifully if you ever get a chance to, to read through the Scripture yourself. But what it essentially means is, look, you've had your third and your fourth strike, And God's done with you. So for three transgressions and for four, that's what it's talking about. That same literary device is used throughout the next several several lines. Amos 1-4. I'm going to read some to you here, and I'll I'll put some on screen. Amos 1-4. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazel, and I will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. Hazel and Ben-Hadad were Syrian kings. And this pattern of transgressions, and fire as judgment continues through the next several. Amos 1.6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. Now, Gaza refers to the land of the Philistines. It's between Israel and Egypt, kind of on the coast. That's known as, as Gaza, then and now. Jeremiah 13, actually, We'll talk more about Gaza's treachery there. If you want to learn more about it, you can look at Jeremiah 13. But again, the penalty for that is this all-consuming fire. 
Amos 1.9, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now, Tyre and its sister city, Sidon, remember Tyre and Sidon, if you, if you know your scripture, were major seaports in Phoenicia. Phoenicia sits, again, on the coast. It was a great trading port. They had a longstanding trade agreement with Israel, okay? And this trade agreement actually allowed them to provide the lumber to build Solomon's temple. They had made this pact, this covenant of brotherhood between Hiram, who was the king uh, of Tyre or the region there, and Solomon. They had made this pact, this covenant of brotherhood. But here's what we find out is that Tyre later became complicit in delivering Hebrew slaves, okay, both to Edom and to Greece. So they were a seaport, and rather than to stand up for that, they allowed this trade of slaves to go right through unchecked. I'd forgotten to show you a map of what this region looks like. I want to take a second and show you that map right now. If we could pull up that map, that image. Take a look really quickly here at what this area looks like. So we have the Assyrian Empire, top right. That's all Syria, Damascus, the capital at the top. The Phoenician states, Beirut, Sidon, Tyre, Phoenician states, top left. Kingdom of Israel, okay, Jerusalem below that. Uh, the Philistines, Gaza, the Philistines were on the left side, kingdom of Moab, Ammon, and then Edom down below. Keep this kind of mental image in mind. You can see how the kingdom of Israel was kind of surrounded on all sides by, by enemies. It was definitely to their advantage to, to make truces with them. And sometimes they held, most often they didn't. So what the Lord is saying now is... He's pointing out the different sins of the nations that surround Israel. Now, if you're in the nation of Israel and you're hearing the Lord say this, you're kind of encouraged because the Lord is aware of the transgressions of your neighbors, and he is going to be the one to punish them. So this is where we find ourselves, almost 111. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, you can take that map down, yep, And for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. If you remember the teaching on Ovadia, we see where Jerusalem was getting ransacked and people were fleeing across the border and Edom was actually attacking the refugees as they fled from this attack up there. So definitely sinful in the eyes of God, absolutely taking advantage of those who were in a weakened state. And we'll see later, God's got a problem with that. Almost 113, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their bodies. First of all, yes, that really happened. What they would do, the Ammonites would sacrifice the, the children of their enemies in fire. Literally happened. The Ammonites, by the way, were descendants of Abraham, descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Almost 2.1, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Okay, also descendants of Lot. The king of Moab in a war with Edom, captured the king of Edom, okay? Actually burned his bones rather than to, uh, than to honor and, and bury and take care of the body. Remember, they had very strict rules on how to honor the dead. But instead of doing that, he actually burnt the king of Edom to dust. Scripture says to lime and used that lime, mixed it with plaster and plastered the walls of his palace with it. That takes it to a whole nother level there. Now, we see God's judgment through all the enemies reaching the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember, at this point, Israel hasn't been addressed yet. This is being addressed to Israel. They're probably pretty encouraged about this. 
almost 2-4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Now, it's getting close to home because they are a sister nation. They, they are followers of God for the most part, and they, they know what they ought to be doing. Now, if you're in Israel, you have to start saying to yourself, we do a lot of the things they do. I hope this isn't coming our way. But now, the prophecy of Amos turns to Israel which is where the rest of this prophecy focuses on the nation of Israel. After laying out the transgressions of all their neighbors, Israel had to be feeling pretty good about themselves. Yes, we are followers of God. We are, we are much more righteous and we're chosen so God will punish all of our enemies while saving us. Yes, God will punish our enemies, but not at the expense of correcting us when necessary. Almost 2.6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Let me explain that just a little bit here. They would actually lend money, the, the bankers and the rich people would lend money to the poor knowing full well they couldn't pay it back. And their idea was, I'm going to lend you money. I know you can't pay it back, so I'm either going to take you as a slave in payment or I'll, take, or I'll take your sandals or I'll take your family. This is what they did. They knew that the debtor couldn't pay. Typically, they would take that debtor and make them a slave. This is what, when Jesus taught, by the way, in Matthew 18, he teaches the parable of the debtor. This is what Jesus is referring back to as these sins of Israel doing this. Almost 2.8, or on garments taken as pledges, they would stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of the God, they drank their wine of those who had been fined. Get the picture of this. When you would do a short-term loan for somebody, you would often take their cloak as, as collateral, meaning a loan they're going to pay back later that day or maybe in a day, the next day. You would take their cloak as collateral. Again, their practice was to purposely give loans they knew the people couldn't pay back. Now, if they were late, they would charge interest. And interest, short-term interest, was usually in the form of wine. You had jugs of wine, things like that. And what this imagery here is, is the bankers and the fat cats in Israel would actually go into the temple, lay down on the cloaks of those who they had, they had cheated out of them, and drink the wine that they had collected for interest. This is not a good way to honor the Lord, throwing their parties uh, in the synagogues and in the temples with the spoils. Now, their other, in general, national sins were things like father and son laying with the same girl, forcing priests to get drunk, refusing to let prophets speak in public. The list goes on. You can read Scripture to talk about it, uh, to learn more about it. Almost 3, 1 and 2 says this, Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only, you only have I chosen among the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Now, this word spoken to Israel, but applies to all of God's people and all the tribes. He says, you are chosen and special. Therefore, I will correct you. God loves us and his chosen people enough to correct them when necessary. Rather than to just destroy them, his first heart is for correction. We don't always get that point, but he tries again and again and again. God make, uses this rhetorical question in Scripture we see to make his point. Almost 3.3 3 says, Do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment? Now, simple scripture, we see that quoted a lot of places, but what it really means, it's the idea of both of covenant and of free will. Meaning God and his people, they walk together by common agreement and his covenant with us. I will be your God, you will be my people. They still have the opportunity to reject it, but since they accept that and they live under his protection, they also have to live under his 
laws. Judgment is coming, but God is so gracious, and he continues to give warning, warning after warning. Amos 3.7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Okay, the prophets have been, have been made aware of the counsel and the judgment of God, and they have spoken it to the people. The people are getting warnings. Do they heed them or not? Most often it's not. Now, almost relays these various pronouncements of judgment against Israel. Really quickly, I'll go down the list. Almost 310. But they do not know what to do. They do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord. Those who hoard up violence and devastation in their citadels. Almost 314. For on the day that I punish Israel's transgressions, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and they will fall to the ground. Bethel now, just a quick word. If you remember, Israel, uh, or Jerusalem and the temple is in the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel in the northern kingdom, Herobam didn't want people traveling south to go to the temple. So what he did is he built some special altars at Bethel, which is up in Israel. And if you remember, Herobam put golden calves there for people to worship. It became, Bethel became a center of idol worship at the time. Almost 4-1, hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. Now, this isn't a slam at weight. Bashan is a, an extremely fertile area, and the cows of Bashan were known to be uh, well-fed and happy and healthy and it was an extremely fertile area. So he's saying, you who have been feeding off of everyone else, that's going to be a problem too. They'd become comfortable. Almost 4-2, the Lord God has sworn by, sworn by his holiness, behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. <laughs> that sounds unpleasant. God says, you had plenty of warning. Listen to this, almost 4-6. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. This is not a, a comment on dental care. Cleanness of teeth was a, was a comment that just meant you haven't eaten anything, therefore there's nothing stuck in your teeth. He's talking about famine. I have brought you famine and that still didn't get your attention. Almost 4, 7, and 8. Furthermore, I withheld the rain from you while there were still three months into harvest. He goes on, so two or three cities would stagger to one another to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. In other words, I have brought you drought, and that still didn't get your attention. Almost 4.9, I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Almost 4.10, the first half of it, I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt, yet you have not returned to me. God has been so patient with them to this point, but then we get to the therefore. Almost 4.12, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Yikes. If you know you're not living your life the right way and you hear prepare to meet your God, what would that do in your heart? Turn to him before it's too late. That's always his call. Turn to me now. You don't know what tomorrow is going to hold Turn to me now. Almost uh, 5.18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. In other words, be careful what you ask for. They're praying for the day of the Lord to come. Lord, return. The day of the Lord, come. Much as we pray now, the day of the Lord, please, Lord Jesus, come back for us. Are you ready, though? And he's saying, what good will that day be to you? It's going to be darkness for you and not light. We need to be ready. Almost 5, 21, 22. I hate, this is the Lord speaking, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. 
Now, almost goes on just really quickly to, outlaw, to lay out these five visions. God gives him visions. And you could teach an entire message on each one of these visions. But real quickly here, almost 7-1 is a vision of devouring locusts. 7-4, a vision of wildfires ravaging the farmland. 7-7, seven, seven, this vision of a plumb line. Do we have carpenters out there? A plumb line then as now gives you a perfect vertical. In other words, a standard to measure yourself by. At this point in all the, in these visions now that are coming on, Amaziah, who is a priest up at Bethel, he decides he's had enough. He goes to Herobam and says, this guy's got to go. This guy, I know what he's saying. He's, he's preaching against us. He's saying to prophesy against the nation of Israel. He's got to go. And that's actually what Herobam does. Herobam tries to silence Amos and send him back to Judah. They tell him, go back to Judah where you came from. If you want to prophesy, fine, you go back there. But Amos forges ahead. And this is where the fact that he's a shepherd and not a professional prophet comes in. He says, I, I don't do this for a living. I was sent by God to deliver a message to you. And knowing his mission, knowing his call from God, he forges right ahead with that. Almost ate one, a vision of, of a basket of summer fruit, meaning Israel is ripe for judgment. Then God himself steps in, delivers the worst news of all. Almost ate 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. That's a prophecy from God himself about the temple being destroyed, about the prophets being silent until Jesus comes. But God knows, God knows in the midst of all this that these judgments are all just a part of preparing his people, preparing his people for this ultimate blessing, which he promises the restoration of the tribes of Israel. These scattered tribes from everywhere, they will be restored in that day. Chapter 9 is the last of the five visions of Amos, and it's and no one will escape God's wrath in the day of the Lord. Remember the day of the Lord. God will remember his covenant and promises. He promises to us, not just that I remember my covenant, but I will restore above and beyond. A common theme that we see in this Almost 9-11, I will restore the house of David, God says. Almost 9-13, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper. Get the imagery of this. The plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will be dissolved. He's saying your crops will grow so fast you won't even have time to harvest them before they're planting new seeds again. Your grapes will grow so fast that before you're even done making wine out of them, there's time to plant more. This is a time of abundance that he's talking about, above and beyond restoration. And the book of Amos concludes with this promise. 9.15, I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. All right, so that concludes the scripture in the book of Amos, all but one I'll share with you in a minute here. You listen to a message like this, what is your takeaway? If you've been paying attention, what's your takeaway? Is it this? Wow, Israel sure blew it. That would never happen here. Is that it? Or is it maybe God is so merciful that even with our failure upon failure upon failure, that he won't destroy us? that he promises to love us and to be our God. That is true, but what corrections are going to be necessary along the way? Or is it this? Is it to turn inward and ask yourself where you might have started down some of these same paths? Not literally, maybe, but figuratively. Where are your priorities? Where are your priorities? Have you failed to come to the aid of a friend who needs you? Have you allowed something or maybe even quietly inside cheered the misfortunes of someone else? I'm guilty of that. I've seen some people who I feel don't deserve 
the best in life, and I've seen them get what's coming to them, and I have inwardly cheered that, considering it somehow God's mercy uh, or, or God's judgment upon those people when really I should be praying for their mercy. Have you gladly capitalized on the misfortunes of others? Now, the solution to these questions, I'm not going to give you those answers because they're found in two places. One is heeding the words of God that the prophet Amos spoke here. And throughout the entirety of Scripture, talking about love for your neighbor, love for those uh, less fortunate from you, not taking advantage of those, but helping those in need. But then inviting God prayerfully to convict your heart and to correct you when necessary. I think of all of the book of Amos, if we boil it down to one scripture that really encapsulates what this whole whole point is trying to get to, is this. It's Amos 5.24. Write this one down and meditate on this. Pray on this. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is an attitude of fairness, love for your neighbor, and mercy. That should flow from your heart. It should flow from everything that you do like a stream, like a mountain stream, unstoppable and constant. It's always there, and it underlies everything that we do. Now, until Jesus returns, there's always going to be injustice in this world. There's just going to be. The question is, what are you going to do about it? What's your role to play? Do we stand back and judge, or do we engage as the Lord leads with helping our neighbor, loving our neighbor as ourselves? So that's it. I want to pray to close this message. We'll do communion afterwards. I want you to take this time, wherever you are, take this time and seek the Lord on where this message applies to you. Because there's nothing better than that word of God directly to your heart. We just need to be open and willing. Are you open and willing to pray that prayer with me? Then join me. Father God, Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you have not kept your heart and your word a secret, but you have made it available to us. Your written word, your word given through the prophets, and your rhema word delivered directly to our heart through the Holy Spirit. God, we have... Lord, we have no excuse. We have no excuse for not knowing your heart and how we should respond to our neighbors. So, Lord, we repent right now of those times where we have failed by either our inaction or our actions failed to love our neighbor. Those places where we have not let ourselves be an instrument of your love, where we have partnered with the world and we have focused more on our our physical and our financial well-being than the well-being of the neighbors around us. Father, we invite you to show us those places where we have strayed from the mark and we invite your correction today. Get us back on the path to righteousness. Let this love for our neighbors, this righteousness, flow like a stream in our lives. Father, that's what we want. That's how we want to live our lives. So we invite you to lead us. Father, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, worship team, you guys can go ahead and head on up. We're gonna take communion right now to close out the message here. Grab your elements wherever you are, whatever you have. Hopefully you're getting in the habit of having those ready with you. Now Jesus showed us what a life of compassion, mercy, and justice looked like. And when we are told to do this in remembrance of him, I think we need to look at those aspects of mercy and compassion. So the bread, whatever you have for bread, take that. The bread represents God's mercy and provision for his people. The breaking of it represents his mercy and his justice. Take the bread.
blood represents the righteousness of Christ shed for you as a renewal of the everlasting covenant. Take the blood. Let this be a reminder to all of us of the way that Jesus Christ came to be an eternal symbol of mercy, justice, and righteousness. Thank you, church. Be blessed. Let's have some worship together.